Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Ben Todd, the CEO and founder of 80,000 Hours. If you haven't heard of it, 80,000 Hours is a non-profit that provides free research and support to help people find careers that effectively tackle the world's most pressing problems. Uh, they also have a podcast, which you might consider listening to once you've cleared out our back catalogue. Uh, the tagline is in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them. It's so, so good. And we've included a link in the show notes. In our conversation, Ben begins by explaining why your choice of career could be the most important ethical decision you'll ever get to make. Uh, and to that end, he explains some of the key considerations people often overlook. For instance, the importance of choosing the right problem to work on, the idea of using leverage to multiply the difference you're able to make, and rules of thumb for choosing an option when you're still unsure what's best. If you really are looking for advice like this, for instance, you're about to graduate or you're considering a career change, uh, Ben mentions a few links in the section which we've included in the show notes and on the write-up. Honestly, no offence taken if you just start reading one of those links right now. But for listeners who already know about ATK and effective altruism, we get into the weeds a bit later on, talking about whether long-termism should be considered a research project or a social movement, the crux of disagreements between people focused more on global health and well-being over long-termist projects, uh, Ben's current thinking on earning to give, and, relatedly, how to memorably communicate the key ideas of effective altruism. Okay, here's the interview. Hey, I'm Ben Todd, the co-founder and CEO of 80,000 Hours. Awesome. And can you maybe briefly explain uh, to our listeners what 80,000 Hours is and what you guys do there? So 80,000 Hours is a nonprofit. We provide free research and support to help people find careers tackling the world's biggest and most neglected problems. And more specifically, we have a series of online guides that help people compare different options in terms of impact, uh, recommends particularly pressing problems you can work on and how you can solve them, and then career paths that might let you have a particularly big impact addressing them. And then we also have a podcast, a job board with job opportunities within these problem areas we recommend. And then finally, we have uh, one-on-one advice, which helps people make an individual plan and then gives them introductions to mentors and funding and jobs to help them actually switch careers into those paths and find careers that are hopefully both fulfilling and have, um, have a much bigger impact. Great. And I'm, I'm sure lots of people want to do good in the world, uh, but there's also a bunch of different ways that you can do this, right? Um, people donate to charities, people change their lifestyles, um, going vegetarian or vegan. There's lots of different ways. Why in particular did you choose to focus on careers and why is this something that people should be caring about? Especially because when it comes to careers, there's like lots of different things you need to trade off, like uh, salaries or job security and, and all of these different things. Why is this something that um, lots of people can do and, and should do? Yeah, so one big reason is just the name 80,000 hours is taken from how many hours you have in your career. That is just a huge amount of time. Um, So it's like about 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, uh, over 40 years, uh, it's 80,000 hours. And partly what we thought getting into this is just given how much time that is, it's really worth thinking carefully about how we can use it best. And like if we could find a path that say even just 1% more impactful, it would be in theory worth spending up to 800 hours figuring out how to do that. And so it's like really worth focusing on. And then, you know, if you also just think like about your life in general, if you want to have a, an ethical life or, you know, you want to help people do something meaningful, you think about the different pathways you have to doing that. Um, you know, you could donate money, you could change your consumption or you could change your career. But like 
unless yeah unless you happen to be the heir to a fortune your career is probably like the biggest resource that you have to actually have an impact mm-hmm. and like you know we found that some career paths have much more impact than others and they're like often not what people are already focusing on and so by helping people switch into it and find out about those higher impact options they can do a lot more good than they might have thought mm-hmm. and you know given the amount of time at stake that actually that's a huge that's a huge deal but then like another way to tackle it is from the other direction so yeah often we think about ethical consumption as one of the biggest things if you want to have an ethical life but if you think there even if you offset all of your carbon dioxide and you stopped using like any products forever the most you could do is um avoid one person's consumption so that's like the maximum impact of that path whereas by like figuring out how to use your career well you could achieve many orders of magnitude more impact than that um so 80,000 hours has this framework for finding those careers which present the biggest opportunities for making a difference and then you have a bunch of advice about how practically to find what's a good fit for you and like eventually switch into it. But on this first question, you have a framework and you have, as I understand it, kind of four factors which you're kind of roughly multiplying together to get an idea of how impactful a career could be. First of all, could you just explain what those factors are very briefly? Yeah, so the first is what problem or issue you focus on. So whether that's like health, education, climate change... Uh, what broad area in the first place the second is how um, effective the solution is you have for addressing that Mm -hmm. and third is how much leverage the career path lets you bring to bear on that solution and then the fourth is your personal fit with that career path so like how well you're doing it whether you'll stick with it whether you'll enjoy it okay so like what would for example a impactful or a good career look like um I have like kind of in my mind here this idea of people working NGOs in developing countries or combating climate change. Can you specifically give maybe a couple of concrete examples of what these really impactful careers look like? Yeah, so we think you can increase your impact by finding something that's better than on any of the four factors I just mentioned. So like one example is one of our uh, readers is Cassidy Nelson. And so she was a doctor in Australia We've actually in the past worked with a doctor to do a bunch of estimates about how much many lives a doctor saves. And we found that doctors do save several lives over their careers, so they have a big impact by any normal standard. But there are some like things that limit how much impact they have, such as like they can only treat the people who are there in front of them. And you know, another thing is that you know, there's already a hundred thousand doctors in the UK, so there's already a lot of resources and people working on the problem of like improving health in the UK. And that makes it hard for an additional doctor to have a really, really outsized impact. So when Cassidy heard these arguments, one thing she decided to change was like which problem she was focused on. Mm. So rather than focusing on health in rich countries, she decided to switch to focusing on fighting pandemics. She eventually ended up moving to Oxford and is doing a PhD in biosecurity. And when COVID broke out, she already had a bunch of policy ideas and like went to the Houses of Parliament and like gave them these suggestions that had been prepared. Yeah, it's like a regret that we didn't manage to get even more people ready for COVID ahead of time, but there was at least some people ready. And, you know, we, we think like pandemics were getting way, way less resources than um, health in the UK, even though it's like an issue of global scope. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like that could be one way to have more impact. And then the other route she's taken is, you know, rather than trying to help people in a way where you're just helping people right in front of you, there's a kind of limit to how much leverage you could get from that, which is our third factor. So instead, she's now working to design policies that would help fight pandemics. And we think like often working in government and policy can be a route to get more progress made on the solutions that seem most effective. And yeah, and finally, in terms of in terms of fit, you know, she also finds this work 
you know, very meaningful and satisfying. Although I think, you know, she probably misses something about the satisfaction of treating people right in front of her. But then on the other hand, there's like intellectual interest and the sense of contributing to these big issues. So I think it also does well on her personal fit front too. So this Cassidy example seems really interesting but part of me thinks of like okay is this just a person who maybe uh, got lucky right that they happened to choose the thing that then ended up being really impactful because COVID-19 happened but you could also imagine a world where this might not have happened and then this person does not have that much impact how do you think about I guess yeah these kind of unpredictable events or being at the right moment and the right time which seem really hard to plan uh, ahead of time yeah so there's always going to be a lot of luck involved and like the best we can do is put ourselves in a kind of situation where we have the best chance possible and so like one way you can do that is by focusing on more neglected issues where there's fewer other people working on them that means if that thing does become a big issue it's more likely that you'll be one of the people making a crucial contribution mm. that was like borne out in this case i mean i do also think even if covid had never happened working on reducing the chance of pandemics is like a very worthwhile cause because if you look at history typically there's something that could become a COVID every every decade or so. So in like over the course of her career, there's going to be, unfortunately, several other opportunities to help avoid this risk. Cool. So one of the things that 80,000 Hours does is research. And another thing you do is using that research to advise people on how to use their careers to make a difference on these pressing problems. Can you just say what you mean by a pressing problem and how you go about figuring these things out yeah, totally. Um, with pressing problem, yeah, what we actually mean is like it's not just the world's biggest problems. It's the ones where an additional person can make the biggest contribution to them. Mm. And one very like high level way of trying to figure that out, which we use, is this framework where we try to compare issues in terms of how important, neglected and tractable they are. Can you maybe talk a bit more concretely about which yeah, kind of problems do seem to be the most impactful and where people can have the most impact with their careers? Yeah, and I should caveat, these are just our ideas. Like one big aim we have is to get people really asking this question, like what do I think is the most pressing problem and exploring new answers to it that we haven't thought of yet. But we do have this big list on our website, which is supposed to be a way for people to get started. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a couple of different clusters. And I think the most important one is um, reducing global catastrophic risks. And so that is basically things that could be global disasters, but which like often are also very neglected. So they seem like if these things happen, they would be like huge in scale, but they often get a bit neglected. So yeah, an example there would be something like trying to prevent the next pandemic that could be even worse than COVID-19. And maybe one important thing to highlight, uh, which you touched upon, is that it's not just about how uh, big these uh, problems themselves are, but it's also about how neglected they are, right? And then thinking about, okay, what can be the counterfactual impact that an extra person working on these topics can have? Um, So it's a mix between these uh, two ideas of of impact and neglectedness. Yeah, and, and, and also we have the third factor, which is like tractability. So that's kind of like, how easy is it to make progress? Um, But yeah, I think neglectedness is one of our most important concepts, like actually throughout our advice. And it just comes down to this very general phenomenon where the more people who are already working on an issue, generally, the harder it is for an extra person to make progress. So that's just the idea of diminishing returns. And it kind of means that, you know, the careers that we most often think of as like ethical ones or high impact ones, because everyone already knows about those, they're like unlikely to be the highest impact paths for you. If you want to have a big impact, you probably need to find something that's like at least a bit unconventional. Mm -hmm. 
and that applies at the choice of problems but it also applies like later on and what solutions you focus on and different ways of getting leverage as well so that that's a kind of theme that comes comes back lots of times I have a kind of question here, right? So maybe there's like an analogy to figuring out just how to make the most money in the for-profit context. And um, it turns out this is kind of hard because whenever there are opportunities to like easily make loads of money, people pretty quickly fill them. So there aren't many kind of neglected legal profit-making opportunities. Why isn't that the case in the context where you just want to like do good rather than make money? Why are so many problems still apparently massively neglected? Yeah, so this is a... This is kind of the question of how like efficient is the like world of doing good within financial markets. There's a debate about like how efficient are financial markets and can have like analogous debate in doing good. And yeah, one huge difference is that in the for-profit world, there's this massive incentive to get people to take these profit-making opportunities, which is namely profit. Yeah. So like you can basically earn loads of money if you find these things and that encourages as soon as an opportunity is discovered, everyone floods into it and you get like 20 social media companies all competing to become the next Facebook and and one of them wins. But in the world of doing good, there's not any analogous force to really incentivize people to focus on the things that do the most good. Mm-hmm. Um, like at the best, you might get some praise from people if you happen to discover something. But even that's like very driven by just like what stories seem good in the media rather than what's ultimately helped the most people. And yeah, we'll kind of show actually like often the things that do the most good often tend to be quite abstract. But I guess it's another reason why they're being neglected is because one other thing that motivates people to do good is just the, the warm glow feeling of helping people, which is important. But then there's many ways of doing good that don't generate that warm glow. And then, then you don't have that potential motivator either. So um, they get really neglected. The big, just the big overarching thing is there's just like not a strong feedback mechanism between like what actually helps people and personal rewards that you get. It reminds me as well in a kind of previous interview we did with Sanjay Joshi from SoGive about what he labeled kind of the like funder beneficiary separation thing that you tend to get feedback from the people who donate to causes, at least like in the kind of an NGO setting, um, as opposed to from the beneficiaries who are actually helping. And when we're thinking about things like pandemic prevention or other, I guess, like a bit more kind of abstract causes, it can be even harder getting getting feedback on these things. Yeah, no, I mean, even bigger way of seeing this is... Like if we think about what just matters in the world in general, one big thing we argue is like future generations is a really crucial thing because there could be so many people alive in the future compared to the number alive today. And they can't like buy things, they can't vote for things in elections and they can't even like say like, you know, you don't, you can't even see them. So you don't even get any like kind of satisfaction from helping them. Uh, And so then it's just like very, very unsurprising that there could be huge ways to benefit future generations that no one's really focusing on. Super. Let's talk a bit about that framework for planning a career. We've talked about this first factor, the problem itself. The second one you mentioned is the solution to the problem. Why is that important? Yeah. So once you've chosen a problem, then you need to find a way of actually tackling that problem that is effective. And it turns out that, you know, when social interventions are rigorously tested, a large fraction of them don't actually seem to have any statistically significant effects. Mm. That kind of means that like, you know, if you choose a problem area and then you choose a solution at random, there's a pretty good chance that it's like not actually doing anything, <laughs> um, which is again, like a pretty striking fact that definitely like motivated us to uh, get started when we started 80,000 hours. And another further factor is like, even among the things that actually work, there seems to be again, very big differences in how much progress different solutions cause on the problem. 
And yeah, this is like, this is clearest in the area of global health, which is the area that has the best data. So yeah, there's been like these big studies of different ways of improving global health, like malaria nets and deworming and cash transfers and a bunch of other interventions, actually like I think about 200 interventions in the, the DCP2 and the DCP3. And they found that these interventions almost perfectly followed like an 80-20 distribution. Mm. So the top 20% of interventions in terms of effectiveness, um, if you just did those 20%, it would have about 80% of the total impact. Yeah, I just think it might be worth lingering on this point because the upshot is that it's surprisingly easy to choose a solution to a problem you care about, which ends up doing far less good than you could otherwise do. And the flip side is that you can often end up doing or making a far larger difference than you expected and the differences are like really unexpectedly large in a bunch of contexts such that for instance you could have 50 people like working on some solution to a kind of general cause area and you could choose a different solution that is like more effective and have a kind of comparable impact to that like group of 50 people there's no question here. I just I just feel like it's worth kind of like no, no, yeah. stepping back and realizing how important that is. Yeah, it is very hard to internalize how big a deal this is. Um, like one way I like thinking about it is, yeah, if, if you could find a path that's 100 fold higher impact than the one you're following now, then it means that you could work for 10 years, achieve as much as would normally take people like you a thousand years to do mm-hmm. um and then you could spend the rest of your 30 career on a beach and uh, <laughs> doing whatever like you most personally find satisfying um i don't know pottery <laughs> traveling around thailand whatever <laughs> um and you'd still like actually have achieved way more impact than you did before mm-hmm. and like probably also one being thing more personally to maybe challenge there is you mentioned that um at least one area where we have like data on this and stuff is from these like global health interventions. Um, what makes, uh, I guess you or 80,000 hours confident or at least, um, believing of the fact that this also holds for like other interventions, um, such as policy or like kind of career things more broadly. Why do you also think that it would follow this kind of, uh, like fat tail, uh, distribution? Yeah. So I would love there to be more research into this, but generally whenever we've found these distributions of intervention effectiveness, they pretty much always follow 80-20 distributions. So like there's been big surveys of US social interventions as well, where it does cost benefit analyses for hundreds of them. Founders Pledge has a report on like different ways that individuals can offset um, carbon emissions Mm. um, that again finds that like, you know, many people actually think that giving up plastic bags is one of the most effective things you can do to fight climate change. But Um, I think even giving up plastic bags for life only offsets about 0.1 tons of carbon dioxide, where like for context, a transatlantic flight is like about a a ton. So even just one flight is like 10 times more than giving up plastic bags for the rest of your life. And like Mm -hmm. every time you go out, you have to remember your plastic bags and like like never throw them away. And skipping one flight is like much easier than that. But yeah, so I think these distributions just tend to come up in a lot of different places. And there is a kind of, yeah, there's like a theoretical reason for this, which is um, if you just think... If effects, different effect sizes are, maybe this is getting too technical, but they're roughly like a normal distribution. And then costs are also a normal distribution, just like the ratio of the two will become a log normal distribution. So we'll have a bit of a heavy tail already forming just because you've got these two factors divided by each other. Mm. I mean, I think though the line of thinking you were saying could easily turn into quite a strong criticism, which is you could basically say these studies are not very reliable. And I think Eva's research is super fascinating about this. And so actually these differences could be very overstated because a lot of it could actually just be measurement error. 
So you know, if you just imagine that you have a bunch of in interventions that are all the same effectiveness, but then you throw in some measurement errors, that would like already spread out the distribution a bunch, but just due to luck. Yeah, like maybe that's a kind of thought worth lingering on also. So outside of the altruistic context, you can like imagine auctions. The example you always hear is like auctions for oil fields. You have a bunch of bidders and they're going to make some error in their guess as to how valuable it actually is because no one's totally sure how much oil there is. So some people will underbid relative to the actual value and some people will overbid. And the overbidders, the ones who make an error in the optimistic direction, will always end up winning. And so you get this thing where almost always the people who win auctions for these oil fields end up disappointed. And you might imagine there's a similar thing going on in this altruistic context where there's some error in our estimates of how effective interventions are. What, it's, what seems to have happened is that, yeah, when you look at just a bunch of academic studies, such as in the DCP2, you should basically expect the top ones to be overstated. Uh, and that's because of this extra measurement error. So it's called, it's just an example of regression to the mean. Mm. And, and this like turns out to have been the case. So GiveWell basically looked at the top interventions in the DCP2 and then did like way more in-depth research and they you know they didn't just do a randomized control trial they tried to make their own bottom-up estimates and look at them from lots of different questions and then taking all that made an all-considered estimate of the effectiveness trying to also take into account effects like regression to the mean and basically they they found that the cost effectiveness of malaria nets was in the end significantly worse than what it seemed to be in the DCP2. Mm. Um, I can't quite remember the factor, but I think it's maybe something like a factor of five less cost effective. But then it still turned out to be like the top ranked thing. So by using this data, you did manage to like find one of the best things. And it's like still much better than the median. But it's just like not as good as it seemed naively in the academic studies that hadn't been corrected for these effects. Cool. So we are talking about the 80k framework for <laughs> choosing a career. We were... We talked about the problem. We just talked about choosing a solution within some cause area or a problem. The third factor you mentioned was the amount of leverage you can have on a particular uh, solution. solution. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, okay. So suppose there's like, you're, we're going back to pandemics and we're like, so something that could help with that is having much better disease surveillance. Um, so that like, whenever there's an unknown disease, that, that genetics code gets like sent to a sequencing center and we are like constantly monitoring whether there's new diseases arising and this would help us like spot new pandemics much faster so that's that's like an example of a potential solution and so like in terms of leverage you could just try and go and like work on that yourself so you could become a researcher um but then you could also consider like could i get even more resources working on that problem in some way uh, uh, working on that solution in some way so that could come through like several routes uh for instance like uh if you're working in government Maybe you can like influence policy towards that. Maybe you can just tell a bunch of people about that. And if you could get like two other people interested in that solution and working on it, then you're having like twice as much impact as if you did it yourself. Mm. So, so some of the types of paths we recommend the most. One is like finding a nonprofit that's doing something with a lot of leverage and building an organization around it. Another is research that can have leverage because if you discover a new idea that can like be shared unlimited. Uh, so that's like a way of... Um, getting a lot of scale very quickly. Third is working in government and policy, just because like, well, senior civil servants oversee hundreds of millions of dollars of budget per year. So even just like a 1% improvement can have a really big impact. And then the fourth is like community building. 
and, and advocacy. So that's spreading important ideas, getting other people working on them. Mm. And then uh, the fifth one is like earning to give. So um, you can have leverage by using, finding really big bottlenecks and like directing your money towards them. And like the reason that can be leveraged is because you can like um, find uh, like the organizations in the world that are having the biggest impact and most in need of funding. And then like basically kind of convert your labor from whatever your current job is, which could be anything into labor on those really good organizations working on those really pressing problems. So I guess the intuition there being that uh, I could, for example, uh, be working at an NGO, but be doing like a very mediocre job, or I could be um, earning a lot of money, but then being able to uh, hire two or three people who can do a much better job than I ever could um, doing the work there and having impact uh, indirectly through through funding those uh, those opportunities. Yeah, that's one way to see how that path can be high leverage. But um, yeah, I would in general, I would say like all of those options can be um, the best one for someone. And it really depends on which one you have the best personal fit with, which is like the final factor that we're going to talk about. And then another thing would just be like what the problem most needs. So some problems are more in need of funding, some are more in needs of like researchers, some are more in need of advocacy. And so that also influences like which types of leverage are most most valuable. Cool. Well, yeah, let's move on to this last factor then, personal fit. I can imagine, for example, um, a listener having listened to all of this and um, thinking about cause areas, thinking about what leverage they could have in these different options. But ultimately, um, this does, again, feel like a very personal decision and where a lot of kind of personal circumstances come in as well. Um, how should people think about this? How should people think about their skill set and maybe how it compares to other people? And especially, yeah, um, this counterfactual impact they could be having um, when it comes to whether they should be doing it or whether somebody else should be doing it. So yeah, what often happens in our advice is you use the first um, couple of factors, especially problems, to get some like broad areas and like broad paths that you could work on. And then people tend to choose between those based on their personal fit. So which one they think they might be the most successful in. I mean, personal fit is just like really, really important because um, people who like the most successful in a field often just have like a lot more output in that field than like the median person. Mm. And that can be a really big difference, which really drives your impact. And then if you're like successful in an area, it almost doesn't matter too much what area that is, but it like tends to get you um, kind of connections, reputation, um, valuable skills, which you can then use to do good in the future. So you had like Isabel Bermakay on the podcast recently. And so like, you know, she became a fashion model, but then pivoted into nuclear um, <laughs> advocacy for nuclear power. Yeah, fairly standard. Um, <laughs> um, but it's like a really good example of how just like being successful in any field can um, be used to do, do other cool, impactful things later. Yeah. And then, I mean, also, I've just, these factors I've been talking about are just in terms of impact, but, you know, most people don't only care about impact. They also care about what's personally, personally satisfying and, being like good at your job is inherently satisfying and you know doing something you enjoy is like also just important in itself so all of us have roughly eighty thousand hours in our career do you have some impression of how much time on average people tend to spend planning that career and then how much time should people be spending and what is the time you spend on the planning stage really matter yeah so i think people should spend more time planning than they do because these wide differences and impacts are not commonly known and already factored into people's decisions. And like, if it turns out to be more variation than we thought, then it makes sense to spend more time searching and planning. Mm. In terms of how much time to actually spend, it's 
very hard to say. I think it just depends a lot on the situation. So yeah, the, the four factors I've been talking about, those are kind of like the big concepts, the things that really drive your impact in the long term. But then there's a whole separate topic, which is kind of like practically, how do you actually go about make like planning your career and choosing which jobs to apply to and deciding between very concrete offers that you face. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, on our website, we have like the key idea series, which introduces the four factors. But then we have this whole separate section of the site, which is the career planning section. And we have this like career planning process that helps you kind of actually work out what you should do. And yeah, like one high level way of seeing that is like normally I would say, so firstly, focus a lot on just like what your next decision is. It's like, it's very useful to have some best guesses at long-term roles to aim for. But like a lot of your effort should be just figuring out like, what am I going to do for the next couple of years? And when you're focusing on a decision like that, I would generally say like, keep researching it until your answers stop changing a lot. Um, This might not be when you're feeling certain of them. In fact, you'll probably feel really uncertain at the end, Mm -hmm. but it's more just like when your best guess stops uh, being really volatile. Um, I mean, sometimes you'll just run out of time and it will still be volatile and you'll just have to choose something. And that's like the least comfortable of all the options. Um, And then once you've then chosen that next step, then you should try it for a while and then reevaluate. And that's because like the best way to figure out your career is often not just like a bunch of desk research and discussion. It's like actually going and trying things in the world. So I would say I'd want to definitely count that like exploration time as part of, we should think of that as well, rather than just how long should I just spend researching from the armchair. So I'm curious as well, I guess, for people who might want to find out more or who are curious to, um, yeah, get some advice, what concretely can 80,000 hours uh, offer them? Yeah, so I mentioned the the key ideas guide and then we have the career planning guide, which is more than like, how do we actually apply this to your situation? Yeah, we also have our podcast, which is kind of like, more um again more like ideas content about like the big concepts and then after that then there's like these two more practical things so we have this job board with lots of open opportunities within these pressing problem areas Uh, i think there's about 500 job listings there currently active and and then finally we have our one-on-one advice so you can apply to receive that for free and then that will help that helps people like narrow down their plan and like apply like figure out given their own circumstances what to focus on Mm -hmm. and then also a lot of what we do there is like try and introduce them to mentors and funding opportunities and jobs within the specific causes to like actually help people follow through and make a change cool so we've talked about 80k and how 80k thinks about career planning but 80k is part of this broader community or at least it's aligned with this community called effective altruism I'm keen to just to talk a bit about definitions of effective altruism and also misconceptions about it. Maybe your first question is just to cut straight to the chase and ask, what is your current working definition of effective altruism? Yeah, so just a high level definition I would use is it's the search for the actions that um, do the most to contribute to the common good or like have the most positive impact. And then you can break that down into roughly two projects. So one is... An intellectual project, which is basically trying to build a research field focused on focused on answering that question, uh, which actions do the most good. And then the, th- the second is a practical project. So that's basically trying to put the findings of that research into practice and actually tackle some of the world's most pressing problems and have a big impact. So maybe like a quick question here is that in the kind of early days, there was a pretty strong emphasis on earning to give as more or less the de facto career path if you're interested in effective altruism. And now the advice 
has shifted away from that. Do you want to say something about what's the story there? What kind of prompted that shift in emphasis? Yeah, and there's I mean there's a bunch to say there. To some degree, I think we just we just made a fuck up, which is we didn't appreciate quite how grabbing that message would be. Mm. And so like uh, then all all the media about 8,000 hours was about earning to give. And then that was kind of like deliberate, but then we didn't quite appreciate like how long we would just be mainly associated with that idea after that. Cause it's one of the things that, I mean, yeah, these are new stories. Like, you know, if you want to do good, go and work on wall street. And that's just, it's just like a very catchy story. Mm. And so, yeah, if in terms of our actual views, if you go back and look at first ever 80,000 hours talk in 2011, we started by giving the argument that, um, Luca mentioned for like, you know, how earning to give could be better than working nonprofit because you could fund the salaries of several nonprofit workers. And we were like, we were kind of presenting that as like, well, this at least shows that like the common sense view of how to do good is like not obviously correct. Cause like, here's this other path that seems like it might well be like better and no one's even talking about it. Um, but then like the second half of the talk, we go on and we say like, we think probably research policy change and advocacy are all higher impact than earning to give again. Mm-hmm. And like one way to see that is like, if you could persuade two people to earn to give, then it's like twice as good as earning to give. And in a sense, like that's what we then went to do. Um, you know, like we then did encourage, we did get a bunch of people to end to give and had much more impact doing that than I could have done if I'd worked in investing, which was another career path I was considering at that time. Yeah, actually, like I was wondering, like in some ways, earning to give was, has been very vindicated recently because, um, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, um, went to pursue earning to give and he's now maybe made $10 billion, <laughs> um, which, you know, would be enough to fund, like, actually many thousands of nonprofit workers. Um, and yeah, he just, like, came to one of our talks in, in 2012 and, and started down that path. Oh, cool. So you had an influence there. I guess it's another example of fat tales, eh? Like, maybe you should earn to give in large part because you might end up being one of the lucky few on the very far right-hand side of that distribution and, like, BSM Bankman freed. And it's still pretty good otherwise, or something. Yeah, I think that's kind of my view, like... it. It could still be worth some people gambling on it. And then if they think they might be in a tail outcome, then sticking with it and otherwise switching to something else, hopefully having learned a bunch of useful skills on the way. So yeah, just one other thing I would say about earning to give is like, we do think it's like a bit lower impact than when we first started. And that's basically because, well, partly due to the success of people like Sam Bankman-Fried, there's a lot of, a lot of wealthy people have become interested in effective altruism. And there now seems to be this funding overhang where, like the number of people hasn't grown as quickly as the amount of money has grown. And that just means like right now, the biggest bottleneck in the community seems to be more basically like these skill sets, grant maker, researcher with ideas for how to spend lots of funding and then like management and leadership. So people who could like build big organizations quickly and deploy this funding. Mm-hmm. And those seem to be like the very most pressing bottlenecks, at least for the coming five years or so. It's like hard to say what in like 20 years the biggest bottleneck will be. Whereas like in the early days... Uh, initially our salaries were like 15,000 pounds. Um, and so one, one person working in finance could like fund like most of the team. And that was like, and you know, people did this like, so like Matt Wage was one of our early funders and he went to work at Jane Street and like that really helped us get off the ground. And um, that had a huge impact. And yeah, these days you can still do a lot of good with donations. And it's like important to remember that you can, you know, you can still save someone's life for $3,000, which on the scale of things is like a huge impact, but kind of like relatively speaking, I think it's become a bit less um, pressing over time. 
there feels like an important meta point here as well, which is that just the answer, right, of what is the most effective thing to do with my career or what is the most effective thing uh, as an intervention just changes with time and with circumstance here. And you pointed here that the EA landscape itself has just changed dramatically. So we should in many ways expect, right, that the answers uh, to what is the most effective thing we can do will also change as those circumstances change. And I think that's a, a really interesting um, transition. Yeah, and that when you're trying to get leverage, there's two way, two types of leverage. Like one is like kind of specialist ways of getting leverage that is only relevant to a particular thing. But then you can also get like transferable leverage. <laughs> um, so like, for instance, just like having a big Twitter following, you could like write about whatever topics on that you want. So that's like relatively transferable. Whereas being like an expert in a certain research area, that's like mainly relevant to that research area. And there's a big question to be had about how much weight you want to put on specialist versus transferable. That's kind of difficult strategic question. Mm. I think it's also a strength of the way that you've framed EA and also the way 80,000 Hours describes its mission. There's hardly any emphasis on the kind of output of the process. There's very little talk about, hey, you should donate to these specific charities. That's what EA is about. Take these specific career paths. Yeah, I mean, that's that's our vision, but then people then just remember the specific things you talk about. So EA like always gets simplified down to a list of specific interventions because holding like very abstract ideas, it's just abstract ideas are just less memorable than concrete ones. So it is like a real challenge. Do you think that's an issue? Do you think people should be like pushing back and emphasizing the kind of points about process, the general abstract epistemic type points rather than the outputs? I mean, I would love it if we could. The difficulty is how do you make them equally memorable? And like, yeah, you can see earning to give and and then also donating to Against Malaria Foundation. These are like two of the things that affect altruism is most associated with. But that's also because they're two of the most memorable and grabbing things. Um, And yeah, I'm not sure how to solve this. Like it could be that if we just come up with like more and more memorable and grabbing things, then like eventually when there's like 10 of them, it's like, well, you know, we can't pin them down to any specific things. There's like so many things. Um, Maybe it like eventually sinks in. Cool. So when we're thinking about the kind of journey that this Effective Altruist project has taken from roughly when 80,000 hours um, was spinning up to now, another fairly major change in kind of interest or emphasis is this growth and interest in this thing called long-termism. And a first question is just to ask, what is your working definition of long-termism? Yeah, so there's a few different levels. Like one level we used to call the long-term value thesis, which is just this idea that most of what matters is in the future. Um, So like whatever you value, whether that's like people having flourishing lives or like the environment or um, art or whatever it is or knowledge, just because the future could be so long and so big, there could be way more of it in the future. Mm. That one is like, in some ways, not a very interesting thesis by itself. Where it gets more interesting is what's then been later called strong long-termism, which is more like the idea that how the long-term goes should be the biggest driver in our decisions from a, mor- from a moral perspective. So that also needs an extra premise, which is like, not only does most of what matters lie in the future, but also that we can actually affect that enough that small changes in what happens to that value is tends to be the thing that should drive our decisions the most from a moral perspective. Mm-hmm. So let's not talk about whether it's right or how convincing all these claims are. But just a moment ago, we were talking about how grabby certain ideas are and how more floaty abstract ideas are kind of less attention grabbing. 
I am wondering which camp long-termism falls in. And there's a question here, which is some other just kind of moral ideas, they have really neat, um, memorable thought experiments attached to them. So I have in mind in particular drowning trial thought experiment. Does long-termism have some similar kind of like concrete examples or thought experiments that can really kind of motivate the the ideas in addition to the kind of step-by-step philosophy style arguments? Yeah, I think one that motivates me personally is just the idea that, you know, if we just just look around ourselves and then we just bear in mind that like we could all blow up at any moment, <laughs> um, which is basically because, we, you know, we've created these nuclear doomsday machines that are constantly on and pointed at each other and are like controlled by like 1960s technology that like regularly has mistake like errors in it and just due to an accident we could have an all-out nuclear war Mm. and you know to be a bit more serious uh luisa rodriguez did some she looked at a bunch of different surveys of experts so it's like a survey of surveys and she found the median estimate was like a 0.4 percent per year chance of a nuclear war which like if you just add that up over a few decades that adds up to like a pretty i mean it's it's not actually going to be independent with each year but so you maybe just can't like add it up linearly but it's still like a pretty big chance (laughs) um yeah but i can imagine never having heard of long-termism and still caring a little bit about the possibility that my entire family could get wiped out by (laughs) nuclear war so why does the long-termism thing make it especially uh worrying or pressing yeah so then i there's this extra bit which is um if we think about resolutions to the fermi paradox (laughs) um like basically there's a pretty good chance that we're the only sentient life or yeah intelligent life in the observable universe um and then if i think that you know we built these nuclear doomsday machines that are not good for anyone um and then we destroyed the only like intelligent life in the universe and then the observable universe is like empty for all eternity um that just seems very bad (laughs) um Mm. so one thing that i'm curious about especially when we're thinking about how to message long-termism to people who have not heard about it before is that there seems to be a pretty big difference between just how people are able to like visualize um, like timescales. So one thing that I often come across, especially when talking from people who are working on climate change or like more broadly in like the environmentalist or the sustainability movement, is that it's pretty easy to visualize what a better world in the future means, where future means um, like your grandchildren or a couple of generations, but especially what you were getting at with most of the value of uh the future is like really really far ahead or is like we're talking about scales that are like you know at least a thousand if not ten thousand or even a hundred thousand years in the future that feels a lot less tangible for people and a lot harder for people to uh internalize how would you think about communicating this message or how does eighty thousand hours communicate this message especially when it comes to um prioritizing causes that are based on that assumption or are based on that logic yeah, and I should probably clarify that the things I was saying just there are the things that I find personally motivating. I'm, they probably aren't the best way of convincing normal people to um, focus more on these ideas. There was a study recently trying to, which asked, like, kind of showed people different pictures of long-term ideas and saw which ones they found most convincing. One of them is this idea of, like, think about your children's children. And in particular, it was this idea that, you know, even there's, like, a small risk this year like a small risk of a pandemic or a nuclear war or an ai accident that then like if you consider your children's 
your children's lives and your children's children's lives like that risk actually adds up to a large chance of disaster over their over their lives and this was like one of the more successful one, uh, kind of types of messaging so it's it's like this strategy of like starting with stuff you care about and then trying to extend it out which i think makes a lot of sense i can imagine when people hear about this long-termism thing for the first time they think about long-term projects as in projects which just take more time which may be doing things a little slower building more cathedrals and less temporary housing or something but you've also just mentioned a bunch of risks and the risks matter because in some sense we're in this situation where we're like custodians over this enormous future and there's this thought like holy fuck look how dangerous this situation is maybe we should actually be like really urgent about sorting this stuff out so these two like pictures of what long-termism could imply and one is thinking over very long time scales and kind of rushing less and the other one feels like kind of the opposite where it invokes this sense of like total urgency and i'm curious do you see some tension there or are these really two kinds of long-termism which can live side by side so one thing yeah when when people talk about long-term thinking like long-termist thinking in normal every day what that often means is like yeah trying to do projects that last for like a few a few decades rather than just over the next like election cycle or something so i guess one quick clarification is like when we say long-termism we're actually thinking like ultimately about potentially millions of years not just like a few decades Mm. but then yeah the other the other point is like there's a difference between are we talking about acting over long time scales so like long-term projects or are we talking about um benefits that accrue over long time scales and long-termism is actually like basically entirely about the second thing so what we're just saying is like what actually matters is like ultimately the effects that we have on potential uh, future generations and then the question is then just like how can you generate those effects in the best ways and that could either be through like very urgent projects or it could also be through long-term projects and that's just almost then like an empirical question at that point about what are the best ways of benefiting the long-term future? But like the thing that we, we care about is just like the benefiting the long-term future, not, I mean, all else equal, we prefer to do it quickly <laughs> rather than building a cathedral that takes a hundred years. Cool. So we've talked a bit about effective altruism and about this thing called long-termism and 80,000 hours has quite a lot to do with both of them. But there's a question here about how these two things conceptually relate So, for instance, is long-termism something like an offshoot or a branch of effective altruism? Or are these more like two camps with quite a lot of overlap but some disagreement and a lot of mutual members but some members that only fall into one? Yeah, just curious like how you think about (laughs) how these things like relate, right? Yeah, no, and and this is an ongoing debate at the minute, uh, how how they should relate. Um, I think one thing I quickly want to say is I see long-termism as like an intellectual movement. So uh, for instance, like within economics, I would see long-termism is a bit more like on the right hand, on the right hand side, neoliberal economics or like heterodox economics on the left hand side. Mm. So it's like an intellectual movement. Whereas like the effective altruism is partly that, but it's partly a community um, of people who are like all trying to do this thing together. I think it's better to think of that more as an intellectual movement rather than a, its own separate community. And then the relation to effective altruism, the way I see it is long-termism is like a school of effective altruism 
Um, in the same way that you could think of like evidence-based global health or animal welfare being schools of effective altruism as well. And there's kind of, there's people in the effective altruism community who are interested in those ideas. But those ideas also exist with, outside of effective altruism as well. And so I would, I could well imagine that long-termism in the, in the long term will end up being like a big school within effect altruism, but they will also exist outside effect altruism in the same way that animal welfare does. Yeah. I'm curious to maybe delve a bit deeper into here than like what distinguishes different schools of effective altruism. And if we take, I guess, long-termism to be uh, a separate school, what do you see as like kind of the main cruxes or assumptions that would define somebody being part of this school or not? I guess specifically, there seems to be one way that you can be an effective altruist and not a long-termist, which is just if you don't intrinsically care uh, about the future or you don't attach like much moral worth to it, at least when we're talking about timescales that are like further than a thousand years and just seem... I guess, to, to many people as uh, unintuitive. But there's also other ways, right, that you might just believe that there's no way that we can um, affect things that far out or that there's like little evidence uh, or, or data to, to guide those interventions. What for you, when you're looking at this um, kind of debate or, or tensions, do you see as the, the main cruxes? Yeah, so among people in general, when you present long-termism, it's not that uncommon to just be like, yeah, I just don't really care about future generations that much. Though within effect altruism, that's like a very unpopular response. And among like moral philosophers and economists who study like time discounting, basically no one wants to say that we just shouldn't care about future generations. Yeah, I mean, not obviously within philosophy, there's always people who <laughs> will represent every position, but because effect altruism is partly once we're in the project of impartial morality, then it seems quite hard to say that like, just because someone's far away in time, it's we should just ignore their interests. Um, yeah, there, there could be if you if you're just like, well, actually, I don't really care about impartial morality. I just care about like people around me. Then obviously, that you could have good reason to reject long termism from that, and then you know also not work on international development and things as well. So yeah, I think within the the effect altruism itself, this moral thing tends to not be the main driver of what makes someone more interested in long termism or the other causes. Yeah. So if it's not um, a question of, of moral worth, then what do you think is driving the difference between uh, people who focus on more near term interventions and uh, these this long term school within uh, effective altruism? Yeah, this and this has been something I've been pretty unsure about um, until recently, and there hasn't been much explicit defense of it, though. We might have solved that with uh, this podcast we just released a few days ago by Alexander Berger. That's all about this topic. And the thing he thinks is the biggest difference, so like within Open Philanthropy and GiveWell, which are like two of the biggest effect altruism organizations, is the way he frames it is how much weight he's willing to put on philosophical reasoning. Mm -hmm. um, and so it feels like with long-termism, it's just kind of like, I'm just following my arguments where they lead and I'm just like happy to go with that, even if it seems pretty unintuitive at the end. Whereas he paints like people who are focusing on what they, they, they now call it the global health and well-being team though like previously people were calling it near-termism. Mm. They're more just like, I can save people's lives right now. And that seems like clearly really good. Whereas like once I get into this, you know, we're thinking about the whole future of the universe. I don't really trust my ability to reason about that. So I'm just going to choose this more constrained thing to focus on. So just to like delve a bit deeper into this, what, what do you think then um, that concretely means? Is this an attitude to risk? Is this in a belief of like what good evidence or good reasoning is? Or yeah, what, what more concretely does that does that mean? So I think it's it's quite hard to make it conceptually precise, which is something I find 
quite unsatisfying. Um, yeah, it's definitely not an attitude to risk because I think both groups would say they're pretty risk neutral. Like ultimately like a 10% chance of helping 10 people is like pretty much as good as a almost guaranteed chance of helping one person. Yeah, it's hard to say more than like how willing you are to like follow a line of argument where it leads, even if it seems a bit crazy. So it, it is some kind of epistemic thing. I would say in my own case, I would probably think about it a bit more in terms of um, the idea of epistemic humility, mm. which is like, if you believe some con- thing that like not many other people believe, um, how much should you just like bet on that versus like kind of deferring to what other people think, given that you don't obviously have better reasoning or information than those other people. Mm. And so then you can kind of think there's like a spectrum about how contrarian you want to be. And you could think of just different people choose different levels of contrarianism um, based like based on like how much weight they want to put on kind of like common sense and what other people think versus how much weight they want to put on like what makes sense to them. And you could just think of like people getting getting off at different parts of that spectrum, I think is a big part of what, what drives these differences. Yeah, so you mentioned that, as you see, one of the crux is about epistemic humility. And I'm curious to see if you can just unpack that a little bit more, where is this a thing, I guess, like even in like a Bayesian way, where it's like a thing about like, how do you update yourself, given that other people reach different conclusions? Um, is it a bit more vague or a bit more abstract than that? Is it this kind of thing about how do you deal with uncertainty and how confident are you in your own estimates? Um, there f- seems to be like lots of different ways that you can you can interpret that. Yeah, there's several ways you can make it more precise. But yeah, one way you could approach it is, you know, if you ask people what is the biggest, most pressing problem of our time, often the most popular answer is climate change um, and like environmental damage. So you could kind of think that like, you know, if everyone's just as well informed as me, then like there's no reason to trust my views over their views. Um, And so I should just like choose the thing that most people think is the most pressing problem to work on. And that's like a starting point. And then you can say like, well, actually, I have some extra information. Like these people haven't heard the arguments for long-termism. So, or, you know, they maybe they're not putting enough weight on neglectedness. So I'm going to try and find like an even more neglected thing than climate change, mm. um, which might be higher impact uh, as long as it's like similar in scale and tractability. And then the question is like, how far away do you want to go from that starting point of just the kind of like common sense answer? One question I want to ask that I feel has like a similar uh, angle to it is, I guess, when you're stepping back now and you're looking at the effective altruist movement as it is at the moment, we've talked a lot about how it's changed, but I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts and, and hopes are for the future. And in particular, um, one question that got um, submitted by a listener, uh, Ben Chug, asks, uh, what, if anything, do you think that EA is currently doing wrong? I mean, one thing I'd say just following on from the last conversation is like open philanthropy are planning to roughly put 50% of their budget into long-termist issues and 50% into global health and well-being. And like, personally, I would go for like 25%, 75%. So 75% long-termism, which steady like that sounds like kind of a small disagreement, but actually like we are talking about what happens to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so kind of in practical terms, it's quite a big deal. Um, and I think there's a similar thing going at the level of the community as a whole, where it, even if we put an open fill aside because of the existence of GiveWell, like a lot more money is going into, um, the global health, uh, as a cause than all the other causes. Mm. Yeah. I think it's like very important to have global health, uh, within effect altruism. So I'm like very keen for it to be one of the causes, but I would probably want to put, generally I'd say we should be putting like most into our thing that seems most promising. 
and for me that would be more the more long-termist issues so that would be like the big bet and then we'd have a bunch of other things as well i feel like it might just be worth stepping in and making a caveat which you're welcome to disagree with where the like relevant decision is how much impact or how much of a difference we might be able to make at the margin given what people are already doing given what the broader like philanthropic landscape already looks like so the implication of you're saying open field could be steering more money towards this long-termist stuff is not to say oh i think global health things matter a bunch less the point is we find ourselves able to make a difference given what everyone else is doing and maybe this other stuff is more neglected so we can like make more of a difference with this extra bit of money and like effort or something yeah no it's it can be it can be quite confusing and it you can think there's there's actually like several levels you could think about this at and at a very broad level we could imagine like the world portfolio of like all the resources in the world and how they're allocated to different causes and you could think what what we want to do is some like smaller group is like how can we push the world portfolio towards its optimal as well as we can like given what we have to offer um, so that's like world versus community. And then also they have the same thing within the community again, where it's like, well, considering the whole community, what, how would that ideally be allocated? And then me as an individual, what can I do to shift the community towards the ideal as effectively as possible? Mm. And yeah, it's like important to think about both of those. And yeah, from the world portfolio perspective, all of these causes are just like seeing way fewer resources than they should. And it would be better if we put like loads more into all of them. But then, yeah, when I step back and I'm like, from a world perspective, what things seems like most important and neglected, it is uh, really these things around accidental risk where like, you know, Toby Ord has this thing where he's like, well, you know, it seems like it'd be pretty reasonable to put 0.1% of GDP into reducing accidental risk and ensuring the whole future of civilization, which I think is about how much we spend on ice cream. And it seems like it would be reasonable to spend as much on ice cream as it would be like safeguarding the whole future. But I think, you know, that's probably like several orders of magnitude more resources than is being spent on that now. So, yeah, I would want to see it go up to that level. And and, and then, you know, eventually if that happened, then I would go and move on to other issues. Yeah, thanks. That's like an important clarification. Also worth clarifying, the ice cream thing doesn't mean we should spend less on ice cream. <laughs> um, okay, so we've been talking about different kinds of intervention which effective altruists recommend and... We have something that looks like two camps. We have this kind of global health and well-being camp. And then you have this long-termist camp. You might think that ultimately it would be good if more people were more interested in this kind of long-termism category of problems and solutions. You might also think that the global health and well-being stuff is more grabby. It's more inspirational. It's more motivating to see this stuff. So I guess there's two questions. One is, do you think that's roughly the case? And then if it is the case, what does that mean for how ATK or some other like EA org communicates or introduces effective altruism? Yeah, I guess one starting point is I'm not entirely sure the kind of like global health things are more grabbing. Ultimately, it's partly just we haven't developed the long-termist ones as much. So, but, you know, one way of thinking about this is like, you know, like I was saying earlier, the most popular cause among like young students, like college students is probably climate change. And like that, a big part of the pitch for climate change is that it's like going to have these very long term impacts over, you know, at least hundreds of years. Um, And so like in a way, that's where the mainstream is actually already is like maybe already closer to the long term as things. And so, 
yeah, I think you can kind of quite naturally go, well, like, you know, climate change is a big deal. And like, there's actually other things that are big deals and also very neglected. And we should care about all of these things. Whereas, yeah, on the global health um, side, you have the drowning pond thought experiment, which definitely grabs a subset of people. Mm. But like, I think it just still remains to be seen, like which kind of ways in will grab the most people and they tend to grab different types of person. So there's, there's definitely some value in having multiple different ways of introducing it. But then, yeah, over time, I've become more keen on just a direct approach where in general, I think like the approach of pitching something that's like one step away from your main thing and then trying to like take people from that secondary thing to the primary thing longer term tends to not be as effective as just going directly for the, your main thing. If your main thing is like super, super weird, then <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. Um, but like these long-termist causes are not very weird anymore. Like um, pandemics is obviously pretty mainstream at this point. Mm. And like no one thinks climate change and nuclear war are like weird things to work on. And and then also even AI alignment has become way more mainstream and there's a you know flourishing field around that. And if you say like the future of AI is important, that's like a that's like a truism now. So yeah, I mean that's partly a change in situation as well over time where I think it's become easier to start with the the long-termist things. But I think even setting aside that, I think it might just actually get more people into long-termism to start with long-termism. What you mentioned there, I think is really interesting and was one of the questions we wanted to ask you as well, which is there seems to be like two different approaches that you can pitch these things as well. One is like very cause area specific. So just pitching pandemics um, as like an important thing for people to work on and just look at like what COVID did. And you don't even have to get into these like long-term value or broader like long-term as thinkings to make that pitch. It can just resonate. I guess, as you pointed out more broadly, climate change has been able to, to do that pretty well or the environmentalist movement has. And then there is this other thing that you start off with long-termism, or at least you package all of these cause areas together and you try to get people to have um, maybe a deeper like epistemic understanding of why these things link or like how to think about these problems in the first place. And especially for 80,000 hours, right, where you're giving like very concrete career advice and uh, you're dealing with lots of different cause areas, but often there'll be like a specific cause area that just suits somebody very well and you don't have to get into all of this. Um, yeah, how do you think about this, uh, these two different approaches about whether having people maybe working on EA cause areas but not being EAs um, is just a valuable thing of itself and that is what um, organizations like 80,000 Hours should be aiming to do with their theory of change versus, I guess, getting people into this EA funnel more, more broadly? I would... Yeah, I would love to see more like principles first explanations of effective altruism. And I can, we were kind of like alluding to that earlier, like ultimately is it about it is about the ideas like, you know, some ways of doing good have way more impact than others. And if we can like we need to, you know, do rigorous research to find these things. And if we could, then everyone who wants to have an impact could be just like way more effective because we'd have all these we'd have discovered all these better ways of contributing. Mm. And like that's a that's a big thing that actually motivates me. And I think in some senses, kind of ultimately what matters uh, rather than the specific answers that we happen to have found right now. So I'm keen to see more of that. It's true that kind of 80,000 hours, we do some both like of introducing the principles and effective altruism itself. And then we're also, we also have a list of promising problems and careers that we think are unusually big and neglected. I think with that side of things, it's good for us to just be very honest about what we actually think. I think that's just like a, it's just a good way to go because it just means the discourse is like, it's just clear. <laughs> um, 
so yeah on that end of things i think you know we should not we should you know just say the things that we think are most pressing and try and get people into that yeah i mean i guess the other thing we you know we want to do is like we do a big part of why we're doing this is we hope that we can just help solve some of these actual big problems and so there i think our responsibility is to you know find the find the things that we think would have the most impact and get help get people into them there's a question here, which is like, how kind of lumpy should the effective altruist messaging be? So maybe I'm like kind of mid late career, pretty senior, and it would be really great if I like changed into some super impactful kind of late career path, right? And I could imagine reading a bunch of the ATK material and maybe the stuff I'm reading is like so bound up with the kind of broader effective altruism package that it feels kind of uncomfortably like if I made the switch, I would be joining this like slightly young kind of foreign community. And I don't really want that. I just want to like specifically do this thing that I like care about quite narrowly. And there's maybe a trade-off where if the messaging is selling this big community rather than selling the like niches independently, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I yeah, I think there should be there would ideally be communities around specific causes already. And I mean, there is a big biosecurity community that's nothing to do with effective altruism. And to some degree, someone who's already got like a strong biology background could go and straight engage with that community. And that might be a good way to go. Mm. Yeah, I think I would just say there does seem to be a big thing with doing things for the right reasons where if we go back to earlier, where if we do think there are these kind of uh, 80-20 distributions everywhere, which I probably actually should have said, I think they like apply at the level of problems and solutions and personal fits and leverage. Like these are all 80-20 distributions and they all multiply together. So it gives you like an even bigger one potentially. Um, yeah, like doing something that's just like a bit less good than optimal actually can mean losing like a large fraction of the value because in one of these 80-20 distributions going from, actually often going from like, the 99th percentile to the 90th is like a bigger loss of impact than going from like 90th to 50th. Um, so actually, even when you're among the like very best things, it's like it even actually becomes it becomes actually more important to select carefully among when you're already in the tail, which is very counterintuitive. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's like you definitely don't have to be like a card carrying member of the effect altruism community. And I do think the kind of community identity can be quite off putting to a lot of people. And that's quite a big problem, but you do need to understand like why you're actually doing it. And yeah, sometimes there can be situations when there is a very concrete thing that lots of people can go and do, even if they don't um, understand all the underlying reasons, but actually those seem to be quite rare, especially in these more in these causes without as much feedback when there's not much feedback, you have to rely on your judgment. And then if you're not even factoring these kinds of considerations into your judgment, then it doesn't seem like there's much hope of focusing on the best things. Um, stupid question to kind of wrap up with. I saw you were tweeting the other day. Um, you were asking about examples of philanthropists or just kind of powerful interested parties who successfully influenced artistic movements um well why were you kind of interested in this <laughs> and what's the answer as well yeah no so some people were suggesting like you know should we have effective altruist art which i think might be a bad idea in that yeah i think effective altruism should be seen more as a research field um and like 
I'm not sure like neoliberal for neoliberal economics art would be like the best thing though. I mean, obviously there was Atlas Shrugged, which did seem to work. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so I wasn't thinking about effect altruism art directly, but I think there's a lot of important ideas in the neighboring space that maybe are some of the most important ideas of our time, but don't have really any cultural influence. For instance, like the idea that the future could be way better than the present. And if you imagine like, the best moment of your life whether it's like a moment of like discovery or love or connection or meaning or whatever it is you know life could be like that all the time um potentially there's like no reason why that's impossible and this is like not something that you know gen- do the most educated people think actually things are getting worse <laughs> and like the future is probably going to be bad and short yeah like this kind of pessimism has like this like cultural cachet especially in kind of elite or like academic circles and that feels like bad and changeable or something yes but then i would also say like on the other hand there are the kind of like techno utopians who just have this like super naively optimistic view of like everything's like technology is going to fix everything and i also really don't agree with that so i'm interested in yeah could, could we have a bit more of a nuanced future like kind of view of the future where um it's cognizant of the risks and how technology could also make things like way worse than they are now um but is still painting a positive vision of the future. I was going to say this is like maybe too tangential to be left into the podcast, but I wanted to raise where we've been having more more discussions about like documentaries for EA and stuff. And just because you mentioned the Leo liberal bit, I'm always so surprised by how impactful Free to Choose, I think is what it was called, like the Milton Friedman documentary was. And uh, yeah, I'm always curious what like an EA version of that would be both in communicating, I guess, core concepts, but also more broadly, like a vision kind of behind this that people can buy into, even if they don't want to like spend an enormous amount of time on the forum or reading philosophy articles. Yeah, no, documentaries do seem to play a pretty important role in intellectual movements in the past. Um, And so, yeah, it would be great if there's eventually some good effects about some documentaries and there are people working on on them. But yeah, it's like, it's a hits-based it's a hit space game so you know the goal is to become like number one on netflix for a while but you might need to try like 20 different times before that would work i think that yeah the thing i did find about philanthropists and art is like it does seem like philanthropists have played pretty important roles in creating artistic movements though or i would i wouldn't i wouldn't say creating what actually happens is like you can discover some people who have some cool ideas and then you can massively boost them and so Saatchi seems to have been a big example of this where he like discovered the young British artists movement when they weren't famous and he made organized their first exhibition for them and like basically made them the biggest artists of the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, and I mean, like, well, there's a bunch of allegations that the CIA did a similar thing for like abstract expressionism, <laughs> though, like secretly. So this has been a really great discussion. Um, but just to wrap things up, there's uh, two questions we ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what is the thing that you have recently changed your mind about and why? So one thing is taking patient long-termism more seriously. So w- when long-termism first got going, it wasn't long-termism, it was just existential risks. And there was a bunch of independent arguments for focusing on existential risk as a key priority. And then over time, we realized that actually... The idea of long-termism is broader than the idea of existential risks. And there's actually like a couple of different schools of long-termism. And the existential risk school is like the idea that 
right now is this crucial moment where, you know, Toby Ord causes it the precipice. Maybe we're in this one of the most important centuries in history where we could determine whether the future of civilization happens or not because we've got these new technologies that give us the power to like destroy civilization but we haven't yet got the wisdom to not do that mm. um but there's like a, a totally different school which is like oh no this century is actually just like any other centuries but that doesn't mean that like, like long-termism isn't important it could still be yeah still true that most people live in the future so yeah this is like the idea of patient long-termism which is like again a couple of things put together but one potential implication of that is that we actually should be doing these very long-term projects like um, building a community or a movement or an endowment that could accumulate resources over time and then spend them in the future crucial moment, which isn't happening now, but like maybe there will be an accidental risk in a hundred years and what we can actually do now that's best is prepare for that time. And yeah, I should maybe clarify, I still, I'd still put more weight on the accidental risk focused long-termism, but I think I've come to realize that the arguments for patient long-termism are significantly stronger than I thought. And just to clarify, you, do you mean more weight as in you're not totally sure what's true, but you think the, the risk-focused stuff is more likely true? Or do you think, yeah, I have a fairly clear picture of what's, what's right, and I just think we should like weight the portfolio towards the risk stuff? Yeah, I'm thinking about it, about what proportion of the long-termist portfolio should go into each one. So I'd put the most into accidental risk reduction and then my second biggest bucket would probably be patient long-termism. And then there's um, a few other buckets that would have the remainder. The um, next question we ask everyone is what three books or articles, films, whatever, would you recommend for anyone um, who's just interested in finding out more about all the things we've talked about? Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to plug things that just directly go on from what we had. So yeah, with the, the four key factors, there's the key ideas series on 80,000 hours. And then if you're more thinking about how to actually apply these to my own career than the career planning series. Um, and then on the near-termism versus long-termism debate, our new podcast with Alex Berger, I think is like the best thing I know about that. Mm. I suppose also just with introducing long-termism more generally, I would, and accentual risk, I would recommend The Precipice. Um, I don't know, that's probably been recommended before, so <laughs> boring, boring answer, but really good re- introduction to why existential risks matter and then it also has chapter eight which is more about long-termism in general which is called our potential and more thinking about like how could how could civilization evolve in the future my, my other recommendation is i've i've made a, a playlist so I, I don't think anyone's recommended music before yes. on your Love podcast it. <laughs> so i thought i'd do the first music recommendation so yeah it's like music about technology the future and aiming to be both like some that's utopian, but also some that's like realistic about the risks as well. Um, and, you know, there's, there have been a bunch of movements that are a bit more nuanced about it in the past. Wicked. That's a, that's a great recommendation. More music. <laughs> cool. Very last question is where can people find 80,000 hours online? Yeah. So just 80,000hours.org. Um, yeah. And that's, that's 80,000 hours. And for me, uh, benjamintodd.org has all my main things and I'm posting like ongoing research notes and ideas on twitter so that's like ben underscore j underscore todd on twitter fantastic and we'll link to all those things in the show notes uh ben todd thank you very much cool thanks so much that was ben todd on why your choice of career could be the most important ethical decision you'll ever get to make as always if you want to learn more you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash ben 
There you'll find links to all the websites and resources that Ben mentioned, along with some further reading. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a star rating form on the top and bottom of the write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.